When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. The first thing Lola noticed upon impact was that she had lime green paint under her fingernails. And in that instant, she couldn't remember why. The second thing was that her car was still in motion, even though she was no longer driving it. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Joan Schweighart about her latest novel, Under the Blue Moon. Set in Albuquerque, New Mexico, the book opens with Lola, a dog trainer and groomer, having been T-boned outside a homeless shelter. She's in a daze until she sees someone enter the shelter wearing a zipped-up jacket. It's hot outside, and Lola worries that he might be up to no good. Hands pull her out of the smoking car, and she watches police pursue the driver of the car that hit her. Lola is in her 50s, disappointed in where life has left her, alone with only a chatty neighbor to care about her. Meanwhile, Ben is an architect, down on his luck and forced to sleep when he can in that same homeless shelter. The problem is trying to sneak his aging cat in and out of the shelter. He tucks it into his zipped-up jacket, even though it's sweltering. Hi, Joan. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You touch upon several societal problems in this book, but first is homelessness. What triggered you to write about homelessness in Under the Blue Moon? Well, it's actually the second book that I've written that had something to do with homelessness. Um, It's a problem that um, I've always been attuned to, probably because my younger sister, who is gone now, um, was on the verge of homelessness a few times in her life, and she knew homeless people. She hung out with homeless people. Homelessness was, in, in essence, part of her life. And um, I had to worry about her all the time. And after my parents died, it kind of fell to me to make sure she herself didn't become homeless. So um, it was always on my radar. And um, after I wrote the first book that I wrote about homelessness, I decided to go all in and I uh, became a board member for a local homeless shelter. And and after that, that didn't work out as well as I hoped it would. It was a lot about finance and I don't have a head for numbers. But anyway, after that, I, I started doing some fundraising for a homeless shelter, the same shelter. And um, and then I still wasn't done exploring the subject. So I wound up writing a second book and that's Under the Blue Moon. Mm. Lola suffers the worst thing a parent can endure, but it's also a huge societal issue right now. My own family is going through the heartache of two young adults who took their own lives. How did you decide to make your character go through such pain? I I kind of wanted to have Lola and Ben, the homeless guy in my book, on parallel paths. And I wanted them to both be really suffering 
but in a very different ways so that I could kind of compare, um, you know, you can, you can appear to have it good and really have all these dark secrets in your life and go be, be carrying a lot of pain and a lot of regret, or you can be homeless and you're very obviously carrying a lot of pain and regret because you don't know where you're going to sleep that night. So um, having the two of them on parallel paths that intersect every now and then seem like a good way to really explore um, having a life that you're not happy living and what you might be able to do about it. Mm -hmm. You open the novel with the car accident without giving anything away. Lola gets off easy, but the other driver, the driver who hit her does not. Why does Lola feel the need to visit the driver's family? I think that's just part of who she is. She, she is very connected to what happened that day. If the guy hadn't, um, if the guy hadn't run and, and been pursued by the police and been shot, um, he would still be alive. So somehow in her mind, it's kind of her fault. And she isn't able to release that idea. <laughs> so against the better judgment of her best friend who lives across the street from her, um, she decides that she'll go and visit the mother. And also, I think because she lost a child and now this mother lost a child. So um there's a connection there too. So she decides that she's going to visit the mother. Mm -hmm. So another theme uh, uh, in this novel is the concept of luck or chance. It, luck or chance play a starring role, really. Hence your title, Under the Blue Moon. Can you say more? Yeah, I like the way luck works. I, I I like the way serendipity works. And I kind of, I've seen serendipity work in my life, not always when I wanted to, <laughs> but um, nevertheless, I've seen it at work. And um, so enough times that I really, I, I think that, you know, uh, serendipity is just floating all around and, and sometimes it lands on you and, and um, it's a real thing. So I wanted to, that to be one of the things that um, Lola and also Ben at a different time uh, decide to trust in as something that might kind of uh, shake them out of the lives that they're living and uh, open up new possibilities to them. Mm -hmm. So that's Both something I think I, I write about a lot. Yes. Both of them experience difficult, heartbreaking moments that change the course of their lives. And there's no solution to being in the wrong place at the wrong time, is there? So, but I'm thinking about Ben here. He's he's obsessed with the small things that might change his luck. What's up with yes, that? Yes, well, he, he, he's down to really having nothing but luck to rely on. Because, I mean, once you're homeless, I mean, the, the bad thing about being homeless is that people think, well, the homeless people should all go out and get jobs. Um, obviously, it's not that easy. You have to have a charged phone to even be, be calling places to look for jobs. Um, and he doesn't always have a charged phone. And at some point in, this, in the book, he doesn't even have a phone. So it, he has to depend on luck. He has to believe that luck... Um, and serendipity that something something good can happen as we all do and we all we're all hopeful all the time that better things will open up in front of us um but he's desperate he's sleeping on a ledge under an overpass <laughs> with two other homeless people and his 18 year old cat so something must change in order for him to feel like his life will go on so that's so moving the part that he's a trained architect if that can happen to him what does that say about the rest of us 
Well, that's the thing about homelessness that I feel a lot of people don't know. I hear so many people say, you know, um, you know, don't give that homeless person that you see on the street any money because he's just going to drink it away. And maybe that's true in a lot of cases, but it's not true in all cases. So I try to um, come up with an assortment of the people that I've known in my life who either became homelessness or, or could have become homeless and how they are all different. And um so Ben is one example. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, um, you know, he had to hire lawyers to get out of a bad situation. And his wife um, started off, you know, completely behind him. But as time went by, uh, people were warning her that she needed to make changes in her life and think about herself because if the trial didn't go the way uh, everybody expected it to, bad things could happen to her. And they just start going in different directions so that when when he's finally free of the trial. Um, he, he doesn't have a home to live in anymore. She would, she waits him, it waits it out. And at that point she would like him to go. So, um, any, so he's one example, one of his, um, space mates, he considers them space mates, the people he shares his space with on the ledge. One of them is just a, a bad guy. He's just not nice. And the other one is developmentally disabled. And, um, it, he kind of ran out of family. He lived with his parents until they died. And, and then he lived with a sister and then um, she actually died too. And then um, he, another sister could have taken him, him in, but didn't want the challenge of having um, an aging adult brother who was developmentally disabled. So they put him on a, on a, um, a list for uh, a group home. And, um, I know from personal experience, from people that I've known in my life, that he, social services don't always work like that in, in a lot of places. There's a lot of people on a list for group homes. And so he just wound up sleeping, you know, hanging out with this other bad guy and um, not Ben, the other the third guy that they're living with and um, following him around. And he wound up under a ledge too, while he's waiting for the group home to open up. He, he doesn't even have a cell phone. So when it does, he won't even know. <laughs> so, so how do we as a society, doomed. how do we allow a developmentally disabled young adult to wander aimlessly? He can walk into traffic he, he's not capable of living on his own. How do we allow that? I don't well, get he, it. He's, he, um, it. It happens. You know, I don't know how we allow it, but I know I've seen it happen with my own eyes. He's not that young. I picture him as being maybe maybe 40-ish. So, mm. you know, it's it was a long time that he was living with family members before he finally wound up on his own. Um but it happens and he's not completely incapable of taking care of himself. He can't really be alone, but he could probably figure out how to steal food and, you know, get the basic necessities if he had to. Um, but he's in this situation with these two other men and they kind of, well, at least Ben, um, the character, the protagonist character helps to look after him and, and kind of guide him um, as long as he can, which isn't, through the whole novel. <laughs> so the bad guy uh, isn't so bad because he's keeping an eye on the develop the the disabled character. 
Well, there are three characters. So Ben is the one who um, wound up becoming homeless because of things being, right. being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The second guy is Vince, and he's just a nasty guy. Nobody really knows too much about him because he doesn't talk about why he is where he is. Um, but he's mean. He, he does a few little tiny things that uh, allow the reader to see how mean he is. Um, so uh, he, he's not nice to Derek, who is the developmentally disabled character, but it, he kind of doesn't mind having him around. It's somebody to boss around. And so as long as, you know, he doesn't um, rely on him too heavily, he's okay with it. Oh, shoot. I was thinking he was doing something good. He's just doing it so he can boss him around. Ooh, I was very <laughs> moved by a scene in which Ben just wants a bed and a meal and a child gives him a $20 bill. It made me feel so bad because I, I give out ones and fives. And it's frightening when guys stand in the middle of traffic here in well, Chicago. Well, that's not something that, uh, oh, sure. It's, so, it's very frightening. Yeah. So how do we help those who have hit rock bottom? It's it's a very hard thing. To, we can't, you and I can't really come up with a solution. Um, <laughs> uh, I created a, a temporary solution for some homeless people in the book, um, but I don't have the power or the money or the know-how to create a solution for all the homeless people here in Albuquerque. And we have a lot of homeless people. And um, I see them Every day when I ride my bicycle, you know, on the side of the, the bicycle trails, there's people in tents. Sometimes um, there are people on benches with coats thrown over them to kind of hide themselves and have some privacy, I guess, so they can sleep out in the open. Um, so I don't know what all of their reasons are for being there. You know, I heard a lot of stories when I was um, volunteering for the homeless shelter, but I didn't actually hear firsthand from the homeless people because I, I didn't put myself in a situation where I would be, you know, walking around talking to homeless people. That's, that's not me. I did it, you know, uh, through other people, but I know people who are advocates for the homeless and who do everything they can to try and raise money for them. And so that's how, that's how I did my small part, but I can never have a bigger role. Um, mm. unless, unless a million people go out and buy my book <laughs> There you go. Okay. Um, <laughs> and agree with me. <laughs> I think there's another term now that's being used in place of homelessness, but I don't, I don't know what the term is. Somebody will, I'm sure mention it in the notes when they, uh, comment on this post. Um, Lola's neighbor, let's get back to Lola. Her neighbor is actually a childhood friend. What's going on there? Why is Lola so weary of her neighbor from across the street? Well, Janet, her her best friend from childhood is just kind of a, a pain in the neck. Um, she expects too much intimacy for Lola's um, for what for what Lola needs. Lola's been independent, living by herself, and dealing with her own problems for a long time, and. Um, when Janet first moves to New Mexico from New York, she lives in Santa Fe. She's not that close, but then she decides that she likes New Mexico and she buys a house right across the street from Lola. So every time Lola comes or goes, Janet can see her. And when Janet goes to the grocery store, she wants to call Lola up and see if she needs anything or maybe coax her to come with her. She just wants too much from somebody who is used to being independent. 
So um, Lola's kind of always annoyed with her, but particularly when the things that happen in the book come up and um, Janet really interferes. Right. At some point, she starts to understand how important that is to have somebody who cares about her. Um, Lola talks, this is another interesting, I, I really loved Lola. She talks about how terrible it is to be apolitical during these times. This is set around now-ish, right? Last year, something like that? Yes, Okay. it is she around says, now-ish. And, and, yeah. So she says it would have been like being apolitical when Hitler came to power. Can you say more about that? Right. Well, I don't know how political I can be, but um, I can. Well, it doesn't matter because I, we're talking about Lola's politics. We're not talking mine. Lola, not you. Okay, <laughs> that's right. Lola's very political. Um, she did not like having Trump for a president, and um, she does not like a lot of things that are going on in the world at large. One of the, her big concerns is climate crisis and all the species that are becoming extinct and people aren't even paying attention to that information. So um, that's where Lola has put all her energy. She she can't you know, bring her daughter back and she can't uh, change the circumstances of how her marriage ended, um, but, but she can put herself she can throw herself into um, into talking about her political views, and she even writes a couple books about her political views. She writes a few books of poetry and gets a friend of hers who's a small publisher to publish them. So um, she's she's political minded though. But Janet is apolitical. Janet just doesn't have any interest in politics, and it drives Lola crazy because she feels that this time to be apolitical is to be complicit. Right. And also, she's extremely, uh, more so than anybody in my regular world, she's so passionate about dogs that her entire career is about taking care of dogs, grooming dogs, babysitting for dogs. Tell, talk more about that. Um, yes. Uh, Lola went in, I forget what I, what she studied in college, but she studied something about animal welfare. And um, she's always been interested in animal health and animal nutrition. And then uh, when she kind of settled in Albuquerque, because she's originally from Ohio, um, she decided that she wanted to be a dog groomer and an advocate for dogs who were in shelters. And um one of the things that she does in the book is find people who who are looking for a pet. Um, in in the first chapter, she delivers. She well, like actually, it's before the book starts, and I mention it in flashback. But she goes to the house of a, of a woman. Uh, family with a, a mother who has Alzheimer's and she brings two dogs and lets the dogs interact with her and see which one is best with the woman. And, um, and then she makes arrangements and these are dogs she trained herself. So they're both going to be good. And then she makes arrangements to bring the, the dog that the woman chose over to her to be her companion. So that's one of the things she does. And then she has a shop right next door to her house where she does dog grooming. People bring their dogs over and she works works on them there. And um, she loves dogs. And she probably got that from me. <laughs> okay, wondering so. about that. So is she <laughs> secretly living the life that you would like to live? No, I don't want to be a dog groomer. I'm really happy being a writer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I, I admire people who work with dogs. And um, I admire a lot of things about it. And one is just touching animals. I mean, 
you know, if you have a cat or a dog, you you, you probably know what I'm talking about. But just the, the love and, and the attention that you get from animals just by touching them. And um, so that's one of the things that Lola gets to do that. I would, I would, you know, I'd like to have three dogs. I only have one right now. Um, the most I've had in recent years is two at a time. So, but if I were younger and had a bigger house and all the circumstances were right, I would probably have three. And so Lola has two and, um, and then she has the dogs that are coming over for grooming all the time. I love writing about dogs. I look back, I didn't realize it, but I look back at um, a lot of the work that I've done over the years and, and there are dogs in a lot of books, but there's also a cat in this book. So that's important to remember. That's very important um, to remember. I'm allergic to all of them and on drugs all oh, the time. Oh, um, oh. And I have to wash my hands because I have two grand dogs, meaning my children have oh. dogs. <laughs> right, right. Um, I have a few of those too. <laughs> so I can only admire them from afar. But um, I understand your passion. So one more thing. You know what else I noticed plays a huge role? color the color of the perp's car the color of the painted furniture lola makes with janet what's your thought about that you know that's something that um well i i was aware of the colors with um with uh lola and janet but i i wasn't even thinking about that that's something that i i do a lot um i guess uh i really like color <laughs> but in the case of um lola um that's one of the things that she does, crazy as it may sound, to try and entice happiness into her life. She starts early in the book, she starts painting her furniture, um, crazy colors that drive Janet crazy when she sees them. But she she wants to she 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 found a story about an Indian tribe. Um, it's actually a legend. Um probably based on some truth where uh, they had a drought for a very long period of time and they desperately needed water and they sent a shaman, they sent somebody to talk to a shaman to find out how to go about um, bringing water to end the drought. And the shaman suggested that they start painting the outside of their houses, paint everything, paint beautiful colors. And um, they did that and, and rain fell and Lola reads that and she just thinks, you know what, I'm going to try it because I have nothing left to lose because she's so down and out when we meet her. So she starts painting furniture. And um, so, yeah, there's a lot of color in the book. <laughs> I was just wondering if you also paint furniture. Oh, I, you know, I do. You're making me tell my secrets here. I paint <laughs> paintings mostly. I, I ah. like to oil paint. I consider myself a very... Uh, mediocre artist. I don't envision things. I don't put together, you know, uh, things in my head and then just paint them. I have to have a still life. I have to have something or somebody has to give me a picture of their dog or their cat. Um, but if I have something in front of me that I can copy from, I I just enjoy the feeling of moving paint around on a canvas. I find it incredibly relaxing. So, um, so I do that a lot, but I do have pieces of furniture that I've, I've painted uh, that's it's harder. So fun. <laughs> it's fun to read a book and to hear before reading it, even for those people listening, it's fun to hear what the author does and how much of herself or himself he has put into the book. So that it's really fun for me to hear which of the things well, you, you know, do. Um, it's you interesting everything. I, the book isn't only about, no. you know, you have probably not slept on a ledge off of the highway. 
<laughs> no, never. That would never happen. Um, well, I shouldn't say never because you never know. But uh, you know what? The the last three books I wrote were historical novels, and I was not in them. There was no Joan in there at all. In fact, I wrote them from the point of view, the first one at least, from the point of view of a of a young man. Um, none of the and they it was a different time period, a different place that I was unfamiliar with. So I did not write myself in at all. Um, so it, I have to say that Lola is a little bit like me now that I'm working on a contemporary novel again, uh, but I'm going back into historical, so I'll be gone from my writing soon enough. <laughs> okay. Well, I loved your river aria. It was completely different than this. I would never have guessed it was the same author who wrote river aria, the three books in river aria and this just a completely different. So that just uh, shows me your breath. And I look forward to the next thing. What is that going to be? The next one. Well, I, I don't want to say the name of the character because um, words have energy. And okay. um, yeah, but I, I it's somebody who lived 300 years ago, a little bit more than 300 years ago. And I found out a little bit about her life and also that there are enough gaps in her life and what we know about her that I could fill it in with fiction. And in fact, there's one big stretch of time where nobody really knows what she was doing. So um, the fiction light went on in my head and I started writing about her and I'm probably about halfway through um, that book. And, um, and I'm really enjoying it. I have a little bit of a writer's block now because I have to shift her into a new place. Um, and I'm not quite sure how to envision it because it's, it's 300 years ago and um, it's not a place where history was being recorded. And we know uh, for it, sure it, that she does not paint furniture and she's not a dog groomer, right? No, no she's not. <laughs> she, okay. she doesn't either of those things. <laughs> and probably not a profession back then for women, at least. No. It's been a pleasure I, talking I, to you today about this novel, oh, Under the Blue you. Moon. You it's just a charming, very, I, I sat down with a cup of tea and I finished it within a few hours, just a few hours. It, it was a very fast, enjoyable read. Thank you so much. And I wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to Joan Schweigart, author of Under the Blue Moon. Hope you all have a great book to cuddle up with tonight. Happy reading, everyone.